morning. Welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. I'm joined by Bacha Ungar Sargan. Nice to see you, Bacha. How was your Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. How was yours, Robbie? Oh, it was very good. I had my mom in town. I had some very good food uh, with uh, a friend, colleague of mine, who is a much better cook than I am and makes delicious craft <laughs> cocktails. So it was a very enjoyable Thanksgiving over here. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, what's on our agenda today? So Rob Smith and Michael LaRosa will be joining us as our rising panel, and we're going to get into the Mar-a-Lago visitor that has former President Donald Trump under fire. Plus, later, we'll be discussing new pushback to the Biden administration's military spending in Ukraine. But first, COVID cases and death rates are up across the country amidst dropping temperatures and holiday gatherings. So much so that Chief White House Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci told CBS News yesterday that more school lockdowns Downs are not off the table. Let's take a look at that. So yeah. coming out of the holidays, should parents expect schools to shut down? I don't know, uh, uh, Margaret. I'm not sure. When, when you talk about shutting down schools, there's always the collateral That's also effects. radioactive. <laughs> exactly. There's always the collateral issue. So you have to balance and you do it in real time, depending upon the viral load of disease in your region. Now, in Washington, D.C., public school students will be required to show proof of a negative COVID test to return to in-person instruction after the holiday weekend. Hmm. Well, renewed talks of lockdowns in the U.S. come as demonstrations erupt in China over the country's strict zero COVID policy. Protests were triggered after 10 people were killed in a deadly apartment fire in the western city of Urumqi, which has been under strict lockdown for over 100 days. Videos of the incident suggest that zero COVID measures actually delayed firefighters from reaching the victims. Now, thousands of protesters have taken to the streets across over 50 locations in China, most notably in the hubs of Beijing and Shanghai. In addition to the end of zero COVID, demonstrators demand Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping step down. So I think that's not you know, surprising to see, given you know, China's just total commitment to this strategy that I think is insane and impossible. If people cannot, you can't trap people in their homes for this long before they start you know, demanding basic human liberty. So it's, it's really interesting to watch that um, taking place. Uh, you know, what did you make of, of what's happening in China? I, I, the, the phrase that keeps coming back to me over and over is huddled masses yearning to be free. Like mm-hmm. there's, you know, obviously China's an authoritarian regime. It's, you know, not democratic by any means. There's no human rights or civil rights. Um, and, and to see these people using COVID um, as the last straw to demand the kinds of freedoms and representation and to demand a voice, um, yeah. it's very moving, but also one feels terrified for them because obviously, you know, the Chinese Communist Party does not respect the right of um, its citizens to protest. Mm. So a, a combination of respect and awe, but also fear for these people. Mm. All right, well, let's turn back to the U.S. COVID context um, look, I don't know. Why do we go first to schools every time there's a, you know, the cases are ticking up again, et cetera? But we're, and we're going to sh- that's what we're talking about: shutting down schools. When, when, no, you know, restaurants are going to shut down. Uh, businesses, I don't think, are going to shut down. But schools, for some reason, it's always schools, even though children are the least 
affected population by both COVID in terms of death and, and, long, and long-term disease. Long COVID, it, we've also heard that that doesn't affect um, young people as much, et cetera. So that's all, but the conversation is always about schools. And I, I don't know, I didn't appreciate Dr. Fauci could have been a, a lot more full-throated there saying, no, we know shutting down schools was a mistake. We're not going to do it. That's that, you know, we'll, we'll strive to have better ventilation in schools, et cetera. If, you know, I guess if schools want to require tests, okay. Now, I, you know, a one-off test doesn't necessarily tell you, from what I understand, you, you can be sick, you can be ill, you can be symptomatic with COVID, and you can test negative. I, I get, it's not, maybe like other interventions, I don't think it's necessarily harming, but um, it, it's, you know, it's not necessarily telling you everything you want to know either. Yeah, you know, there's a great quote um, from a former teachers union leader in New York, I forget which one it was, where somebody asked him, when are you going to start standing up for children? Mm-hmm. And his answer was when they join a union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just think that this is, I mean, you know, I'm probably going to get crushed for saying this, but this is what happens when, you know, members of the educated elite join unions and end up using the power of that union to wage war on working class and poor children who need public schools. I mean, and that's what's happened here is that, you know, we think about COVID as being about politics, but it's really not. It's class warfare by people who are educated, who are part of the elites um, against the working classes. And I'm not saying that teachers are, you know, the most well-paid people in America. They're not, but they are part of a class whose interests are very much about lockdown, staying home, working from home, when their job is to help children get an education, right? So there is a a, a clash of interests between mm-hmm. the producers of public school and the consumers of it. And the public school unions led by Randy Weingarten have been on the wrong side of this over and over and over. And if you're not angry about this, I don't know what to tell you because our most vulnerable people in this country are surely disabled children. I mean, who deserves our empathy more than disabled children? And yet they are the ones who again and again and again are simply abandoned by this view of COVID lockdown. And I just, it's so enraging to me, Robbie. Our empathy is placed so much in the wrong place on this question. And somebody needs to watch young kids so their parents can work and and do everything they need to do. That's why you're so right to say that it's an attack on working class people, people who don't have other options, but to rely on the public education system. That's part of the reason it's there for, not just educating your kids, but providing a very vital um, daycare function. That's why it was the spectacle during COVID or earlier in COVID, so ridiculous when the, the schools, the teachers, because they had the protection of the union, were not working or they were virtual, but you still had to have someone in the classroom to watch kids. So you, 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 you were hiring like an additional employee. The only reason they were doing that is because the teachers had the protection, like you said, um, um, of that union. And it just, it, it makes no sense, but, but that was the reality. So I'm glad most schools, yeah, I don't anticipate. By the way, yeah, go hiring ahead. a working class employee, right? Yeah like a teacher's aide or somebody who's not paid as well, who's not part of the union to do the dirty work of showing up. I mean, that's the problem here is the outsourcing of the dangerous work to people who are less privileged than you in every way. Yeah. So Fauci had his 
last, I think, official day. It was the last press conference for, from the White House uh, last, uh, last week on Tuesday. You know, he had his final remarks were on you know, urging everyone to get vaccinated, et cetera, kind of, you know, defending his role. He was hailed by the White House press secretary and Dr. Zha as, like, the most important public health servant in, I don't know, the history of the United States. Probably, probably he is, for better or worse, you know, the, the most uh, well-known uh, figure in that position. Um, do you think, Bacha, that, you know, what do you think Dr. Fauci's legacy will be in the future? Will, will he be, because he's become such a more polarized figure, and initially in the pandemic he wasn't, but the right, Republicans, covid mitigation weary people really dislike him um is that going to close is that wound going to close back up over time or what do you think i i you know i respect his medical knowledge i just think that something else got in the way when it came mm -hmm. to COVID. um he did he he was he was given um the authority and the power to weigh in on questions that are really questions of public policy not questions of virology. And he did not have the humility to say, this is beyond my expertise, right? So I think that that was really the problem. And that's, I think, what people, why, why they're so angry is at this overreach um, and, mm. and the sort of the idea that I am the science, I represent the science. Um, and I completely agree with you. When he was um, on the other side of President Trump, you had a kind of push and pull, right? And that was, I think, very fruitful. I mean, I think they came up with some good, there was a good back and forth there, but the minute the Biden administration yeah. took over, this just became a regime that you couldn't, that you couldn't um, uh, object to, despite it being so deeply unpopular. And so when I talk to mothers, when I talk to working class people, and especially when you talk to Republicans, they are very, very, very angry. And I think with good reason, um, you know, how how much of that is his fault rather than the people around him who listened to him and gave him that power? I'm not really sure. Well, and he frankly seems to uh, look up to the kind of uh, zero COVID strategy that China has pursued, I think, to its detriment. But you can imagine him wishing he had that level of power to compel people uh, to to follow you know mitigation efforts more strictly. That's what he said when you and I interviewed him on the show. He said, "If I could do it all over again, I you know I wish I had recommended even stronger lockdowns, shutdowns, etc." Well, we're seeing. Well, how I'm that not goes. sure it's fair to to compare that to China's. Um, you know, th to say that he wished that that's the policy we would have followed is not necessarily to say he wishes we were living in that sort of China context. And even in his answer on on CBS about whether schools will be locked down again, he. He, he sort of hedged by saying, well, it depends on the individual needs of the different areas, right? Although I don't understand why the needs of working class New Yorkers, for example, would be erased in that, right? I mean, he was sort of saying, look, you know, each place will make its own decision. But um, overall, I think he was very much on the wrong side of many of these issues. And it, it was to a disastrous effect. All right, Bacho, you'll tell us what's on your radar coming up next. Stay tuned for that.
BlockFi, a cryptocurrency lending firm, filed for bankruptcy today, joining FTX as the latest domino to fall in crypto's apparent implosion. That company was entangled with FTX, so the fall of FTX uh, impacted BlockFi and made the bankruptcy foregone conclusion. We now know also in the days before the downfall of FTX, they had dropped a $1 million donation to a super PAC aligned with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. According to Bloomberg News, first reported that story. The contribution was seen in the latest filing with the Federal Election Commission. OpenSecrets.org says the super PAC poured the most cash, $239 million, into the midterm elections, which went to GOP candidates. Democrats have also received funding from FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. According to reports, before the company's collapse, SBF donated roughly $35 million to Dems. All of this news comes as Attorney General of the Bahamas announced that FTX is the subject of an active and ongoing investigation. The company is headquartered in the Bahamas. Mm. Um, you know, Robbie, what I think is so funny about Open Secrets finding out um, that they also contributed to the GOP is it really exposes the, the, the lie that political donations are anything except um, an attempt to curry favor and get power and consolidate power, right? You know, there's this fantasy, this fiction that these Silicon Valley billionaires like to perpetuate that somehow giving to Democrats is an act of morality, is an act of charity, right? But it's nothing could be further from the truth because politics is completely amoral. It is all about power. And here what you're seeing is, is the privatization of the public good. So instead of having an engaged body politic that decides how to spend its money for the greater good based on what the majority of Americans think is the greater good, you have billionaires buying off politicians in order to curry favor with them to push what their private agenda is, what they think is for the common good, which oftentimes is just what benefits elites. I mean, that's sort of the, the critique here. And I think it's just so funny that as it seemed like there was going to be a huge red wave, suddenly they started giving to the GOP, mm. right? It really exposes that. Well, and Sam Bankman-Fried was basically single-handedly writing the crypto regulations. Uh, he was the man behind them. I, I assume, I, mean, I haven't looked at them closely, but wouldn't you want to bet that the regulations he was proposing would be ones that were maybe better for his platform. Just you know, as we've seen, Facebook eventually got be, has gotten behind. It supports uh, reforms to Section 230 and some other some the laws governing tech. Facebook supports them. Facebook supports specific reforms that Twitter utter, absolutely uh, has opposed prior to Elon Musk, right? And I looked at it. It's clear because this regulation would hurt Twitter a lot more than it hurts Elon Musk because it, that regulation would re require the platforms to actually do a lot more moderation. Facebook Facebook employs, at the time at least, a lot more moderators than Twitter did, et cetera. So there's so many ways um, that, uh, that, you know, the big guys, I mean, this really goes to a libertarian criticism of, of regulation, often in practice, which is that, well, who's doing the regulating? Are, is it regulators who, uh, you know, who are st whose who staff used to work at these companies and regulation was proposed by these companies and, and is going to crowd out competitors, upstarts, et cetera? 
you know, that's always uh, that's always the fear here. So obviously, the crypto situation is even more complicated because it's just a complicated subject um, in in general. You know, I've been trying to understand it better. I, I work with a lot of people at Reason Magazine who are very optimistic about crypto in general, um, and I, I think I sh- I've generally shared that optimism. Th- this, in some sense, obviously has to be a blow to that because you know this guy turned out to be an utter, like a total fraud grifter. Thief, etc. I presume this story will end with him uh, in prison. Uh, Mark Cuban said that today. I, I saw that he he gave that statement. I agree. This guy's going <laughs> to end up serving um, some some jail time. But um, the, then the question becomes: Well, is that is is that crypto? Is that you know this is it's just a it's not a it's, it's a kind of con or or lends itself to kind of scammy type people. Of course, you know we have scammy people in the financial sector itself. Uh, you know the whole everything that went wrong in 2008 with uh, with the you know with uh, housing and et cetera and 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 uh, and all of that was a con in some way. So is this really any different? Um, I I don't know. What are what are your thoughts on the crypto situation? I've always felt um, crypto suspicious because to me it doesn't pass the truck driver tr- test. Like, can I picture truck drivers using this as a way of paying for the stuff they need on the road, you know, when they're away from home? And I just can't. Like, it just didn't ever seem to me to have any sort of populist appeal. Well, it seemed I don't know, much but more- I would, well, to that I would say truck driver, no, but truck drivers in Afghanistan, maybe, truck drivers in India, truck, uh, I think actually that's probably the best case for crypto is in destabilized countries where there's no trust in the central government or the central bank and you need to, to pay people or engage in, in commerce in some surreptitious way or some way that isn't vulnerable to the predations of the state um, is, is where you actually could have crypto. But sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, Bob. So, of course, that is the libertarian fantasy, right? That there we will there will be no borders whatsoever. There will be no currencies related to any particular economy. That the, there will be a global economy, right? That we will all participate in with something called blockchain. That I still can't figure out exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> but I think that for most people, the idea that you know their currency should be in some way related to the economy um, that they live in, you know, that based on borders, based on civil rights that are guaranteed by a specific government that they vote in is something that I think resonates a lot more with, you know, what we call normies, right? Average people, you know, people who, um, the people who produce things and move things and create things. And to me, this seems sort of like to be leaning into one of the major problems in our economy right now, which is that we used to be an economy that was really primarily based on manufacturing and production. And now we're an economy where the largest sector of our economy is finance, which is speculative, which is sort of up there where there's really no trickle down effect, right? Where it's sort of all of the gains are sort of remain up there with with the, the top 1%, the top 10%, whoever can afford to be invested in, um, you know, in, in stocks mm-hmm. and in stock market. And, and that has a huge impact because, you know, when you have an economy based on production, you know, the people who are making the things end up being the consumers as well, which is sort of a tide that lifts all boats. Whereas, you know, what we have now is, you know, stock buybacks, things like that, where the people at the top are really just enriching themselves. And to me, crypto just seemed much more on on the speculative side and even further detached from, you know, the real things that make a life, you know, the real things that we rely on, the real labor that, you know, we all depend upon just to exist. Hmm. Well, I mean, the, but the case for it isn't just that we're trying to create some like global one world, whatever, right? It's that the it, it, people in various 
parts of the world, including in some cases, in some ways here at the U.S., if you can't trust the government, if the government is, is wrecking its currency or is, is, you know, spending uh, wrongly or, gra or grabbing, confiscating massive amounts of money from people or, you know, in the kinds of things that have gone really, you know, uh, wrecked in, in Greece, in Nigeria, et cetera, you know, with the currency becoming worthless or something overnight based on really bad stuff the government does, something outside the government's purview or or control can can be good, not just for, you know, speculators, but it, actually for working people as well. And uh, and I, I think, I, I see, I know what you're saying. I, get, I absolutely understand what, you know, where you're coming from here. But I, I think it's something, it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that working people or normies could use that, that's not, because it's not prohibitive. Like, you don't need to own a, you know, a whole, a, a, a you don't need to own a factory to to participate in in crypto. You can you can like go out and get some crypto right now. There and there are multiple platforms for doing for doing so. And I think people the the idea being people in part of the world, this could be a good competitor from them in places where the government has proven to be not uh, responsible or trustworthy on financial issues, including here at home, including here at the U.S., where where we have out of control inflation in part because of uh, of government spending beyond its means or having bad spending priorities, having a terrible energy policy, and having a you know policy of contributing to foreign interventions and foreign wars at every turn. So, but that said, this guy was absolutely fraudulent. Uh, and I think possibly fraudulent under any, you know, under any, uh, so the question is, is it, is it about crypto or is it this kind of person was going to con people regardless using, you know, whatever platform was available to him? Because there's nothing, even though his scheme was a little complicated, there was nothing, you know, he took people's money and then used it for some, for, for purposes that he was not being straightforward or honest about. And that, you know, that's just, that's something you can do, you know, regardless. So, well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Bacha? There's a crime wave happening across America and it's disproportionately impacting the most vulnerable Americans. It's popular among journalists on the left to point out that crime is nowhere near as bad as it was during the highs of the 1980s and 1990s. And they're right that the national murder rate was significantly higher then. But that's because crime was more evenly distributed. The 80s and 90s were dangerous for all Americans, whereas the rising crime today is hyper-localized in the kinds of neighborhoods where few journalists venture and nearly none live. As Rafael Manguel has painstakingly chronicled, the murder rate in many cities, including Philadelphia, Indianapolis, Louisville, Trenton, Memphis, and Greensboro, was as high in 2021 as it was in the 1990s, and in some cases, it was even higher. We know from the FBI's crime statistics that the majority of the victims of this new wave of violent crime are black Americans. Crime also disproportionately impacts poor and working class black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Meanwhile, most journalists live in the most expensive American cities and not the neighborhoods where their Uber and Amazon delivery drivers live. America's metro areas are more segregated now than they were in the 1990s, both in terms of race and income. If you're a journalist working for a mainstream liberal news organizations, chances are you think the crime wave isn't real because it isn't real for you. If you're an upper middle class journalist living in Park Slope or on the Upper West Side, it's laughable to compare today to the 1990s. If you're a black teenager living in Philly, it's criminal gaslighting not to. For too many Americans, the crime wave and the homicide spike are all too real and not going anywhere. So how do we fight it? 
One thing we know works from study after study is more police. Peter Moskos of the Violence Reduction Project has compiled many of these studies at his blog, Quality Policing. But to give you just a taste, a 2004 study found a large deterrent effect of observable police on crime. A 2018 study suggested that U.S. cities are substantially underpoliced for the goal of deterring crime. A 2019 study found that increasing police presence is effective in crime prevention. A 2012 study found that each dollar spent on police is associated with approximately $1.60 in reduced victimization costs, suggesting that U.S. cities employ too few police. A 2015 study found that policing disorder strategies had a small but noteworthy impact on reducing crime when the community was involved. A 2018 meta-analysis found the same thing. A 2022 study found that a police strike in Brazil led to an increase in homicides of between 100 and 250 percent. Another 2022 study found an increase in car theft and burglaries when local police stations were shut down because, quote, criminals are less deterred due to a lower visibility of the local police. And a 2022 working paper published at American Economic Review, which focused on the race-specific effects of larger police forces in the United States, found that each additional police officer abates 0.1 homicides the effects of which were twice as high for black victims than they were for white victims. The problem is, is that additional police officers also make arrests for other things other than homicides. The study found that while more cops do bring down the homicide level, quote, at the same time, larger police forces make more arrests for lower level quality of life offenses. And this can lead to the impression that black communities are both over-policed and under-policed, something that Giliovi argued persuasively in her tour de force book, Ghetto Side. Add to this the defund the police movement that followed George Floyd's horrific murder and the Ferguson effect in which police pull back after situations of intense criticism, fair or unfair, and you end up with a stubborn murder spike. What's to be done? An op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this weekend argued that the U.S. knows how to reduce crime. Written by Thomas Apt, the founding director of the Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Reduction at the University of Maryland, the piece argues that a series of pragmatic, evidence-based approaches have been used to great success to reduce crime. For a 2016 meta-review, Apt and his colleagues interviewed dozens of community leaders, former gang members, cops, and relatives of murder victims, and came away with important lessons for fighting crime, violent crime. Apt learned that most gun violence is urban street violence that takes place in small, tightly networked clusters or hotspots, and that gun violence responds to both positive and negative incentives. So how do you fight gun violence? With quote, a focus on where violence is most concentrated, the balanced use of both rewards and punishments, and outreach to ensure that communities see anti-violence measures as fair and legitimate. In short, what Abt calls focused deterrence. Thomas Abt joins us this morning. Thank you so much for being with us to discuss this crucial topic. Um, so my first question for you, um, you know, I, I think the the right is correctly infuriated um, by the way that Democrats talk about gun violence because Democrats tend to focus on things like banning AR-15s. Um, but as you write in your op-ed, that's really not where most gun violence is happening. It's happening with street gun, uh, with 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 um, uh, handguns, and it's it's urban street violence, gang violence, um, often in their own backyard, in places where there already are a lot of gun restrictions. How can we have a better conversation 
about what's needed to curb violent crime. Thank you, Bacha, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, wow, I have never seen such a uh, fulsome uh, recitation of the uh, research uh, as in your uh, presentation. So thank you for that. Just a few uh, quibbles. Uh, you know, the first thing is, is that I think uh, Republicans sort of exaggerate uh, how influential the hard left is on Democrats in general. The main Democrat in charge is Joe Biden, and Joe Brian, Biden has, uh, has uh, proposed billions for police and billions for community-based violence intervention. So yes, I think Democrats are firmly in support of reasonable restrictions uh, on uh, the use of guns, but they also have broader strategies to cut public safety, uh, to cut uh, violent crime. Hmm. Go ahead, Robbie. Yeah, so so let's get more specific, right? Because we want, you know, as Bacha laid it out, we, we, we want to target violent crime. We want to deter and then solve homicides without bringing back, you know, the kind of stop and frisk regime where, you know, all black people in an entire city feel like they're being stopped arbitrarily and erodes, you know, community trust, erodes trust in authority, et cetera. I think we all, you know, many people, I think a majority of Americans find that to be uh, too, too egregious an infringement on citizen civil liberties, even if the effect would be some kind of bringing down crime by, by some amount. So, so what, you know, what is there a middle, what, what is the, what do we, what can we do without going, you know, that far ever again, because it's something there's no public ap appetite for doing? That's a great question. I think the, the thing to remember is that there are three fundamental principles for effective violence reduction. The first is that you be focused, meaning that you focus on the small number of people and the small number of places, as Bhatia said, where crime concentrates. So you don't have to be everywhere and work uh, with everyone. The second thing is that you need a balanced set of both rewards and punishments. You need things for people to say yes to and things for people to say no to. And then finally, you have to make sure that what you, whatever you do in this space is perceived to be fair and legitimate by the people who are most impacted. And if you're focused and you're balanced, that's most likely going to be the case. People will welcome those types of strategies. Hmm. What do you make of what is being alleged, at least, to, to be happening in some cities, I think Philadelphia being one example, where uh, prosecutors are at least being accused of, you know, not uh, not prosecuting uh, uh, gun crimes, you know, illegal for repeated felons to still have access to guns, that kind of thing. If it's not being prosecuted, they're being put back on the street, and is the, and that is being alleged to be a driver of the increase in crime there. And, the, and as Bacha said, the increase in crime in Philadelphia actually is pretty staggering um, it, compared with the rest of the country. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair charge based on your research or your knowledge of the situation? Well, I think there's two things going on there. I think, one, uh, yes, Philadelphia uh, could have uh, more aggressive policies in terms of uh, people who are arrested and charged with gun offenses. But there's also just a broader issue there, which is that the, the leaders in Philadelphia are really struggling to get along. There is a toxic political environment in that city and in some other cities uh, uh, that you mentioned where the political people are going to political extremes. And the important thing for the public to recognize is that fighting crime and violence is a team sport and involves enforcement, but also non-enforcement. And if 
people who are on the team can't get along, the team can't win. And so there's at least two things going on in Philadelphia. You interviewed hundreds of um, families of victims of violent crime. What do they want? Give us a sense of what they told you. I think what I've learned uh, speaking with victims of crime, speaking with people who live in these impacted communities, is they're much more pragmatic than folks on either the hard right or the hard left, people who are removed from this, uh, from this problem. They want relief and they want relief now. And generally what they want is a sort of anything that works strategy. So do they, uh, are they frustrated with, uh, with police abuses and overreach? Sure, but do they want police in their neighborhood? Yes, they do. Um, do they want more supports and services? Yes, they want that too. Do they want investments in their community in terms of jobs, better health outcomes, better education outcomes? Yes, they want all of that. And so I think that unfortunately what we see is people who are on the extremes and who are not close to the problem are defining it as you can have one thing or you can have the other. When in fact the people closest to the problem want a sort of both and conversation. How would you respond to something I hear a lot of progressives say, which is that well, let's shift funding. Instead of funding or having more funding for law enforcement, let's have funding for you know, mental health professionals who could intervene in these situations or, I guess, housing or you know, the other kind of package of progressive uh, uh, concerns or progressive solutions for making live, the lives of people better. Um, the shifting of resources sources in that direction is something that I hear a lot from people on the left that we have on the show. Sure. Well, I think those people have it half right. We absolutely need to invest in community-based solutions, in better mental health, and uh, other supports and services. But where they get it wrong is they suggest that it's an either-or conversation and that we have to cut funding for police. This is not the right time to cut police. As you heard, there's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, more police can effectively uh, reduce crime. There's also a bunch of evidence that shows that it's not the actual number of police that's most important, but using the right strategy. So I don't think we know what the right number of police is right now, but it's certainly not a good idea to create a hostile environment where these people who are supposed to be working together are now competing for funding. So let's, in, let's invest in both police and in prevention. This is like one of the most measured and important conversations I've ever had on this topic, which we talk about a lot because it's so important. Um, one last question for you. Um, one thing that I find so frustrating about this conversation around crime is that leftists seem to think that it's racist to talk about crime because so much of it is localized in low-income Black neighborhoods, when to me it seems like the opposite is the case. It's deeply racist not to talk about it because you're essentially sentencing the people you most want to help to just live with it. I, I guess my question would be, um, aren't you worried that a method that I think would be effective, your focused deterrence idea, that this will be a hard sell to democratic polities because they are so worried about um, this question of race and crime and talking about it? Well, I think it's a good question. I think progressives are worried that these discussions can stigmatize uh, poor people of color and paint them all with the brush of being violent. And that's certainly not the case. But it's also important to realize that uh, you put anyone in these circumstances, you put anyone uh, who suffers from the legacy of uh, you know, invidious racial discrimination 
you know, uh, segregation, disinvestment, uh, and, and all of those things, and uh, add that up over generations. And there's going to be social dysfunction. We see that in non-black communities as well. So I don't think we need to be afraid of this conversation as, as long as it's framed well. And the other thing is, is it does a real disservice to these communities, because what is one of the biggest racial disparities? The racial disparity in violent victimization. And so those victims need, uh, need support and assistance as well. Thomas, thank you so thank much you for joining so much. us. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Colorado Governor Jared Polis offered no answers, but vowed to, quote, take a hard look at why red flag laws did not prevent last week's tragic Club Q murders, despite the suspect having had previous interactions with law enforcement, something we hear over and over again. Meanwhile, Representative Lauren Boebert had this to say about the onslaught of criticism she received from Democrats after the suspected crime. Let's watch. You cannot just continue to blame society for evil pe people. At some point, you have to blame the criminal instead of just doing whatever you can to get the blame off of them and release them back into society quicker. Uh, you know, Dan, I have been accused of um, just about every mass shooting there has been since the left has learned of my name, whether it's Uvalde or uh, the King Super shooting in Boulder, Colorado, or the Buffalo, New York shooting, or even Paul Pelosi getting hammered. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I have been... I, I have been blamed uh, at, at, for all of them. Um, and, and so all of this, it, it has to come to an end, this blame game. You know, I think the left is pissed that I won my election. Of course they are. And so they're trying to find something to go after me uh, mm -hmm. about. Hmm. So I agree that we should be very careful about, you know, blaming others for the actions of deranged killers, deranged gunmen. Um, you know, this is something that both sides like to do all the time, try to figure out the, the crazy killer's political ideology, see if they have a discernible political ideology, and then try to blame, you know, whoever fits it. This is something that went very, very wrong notoriously in the, uh, the, the Tucson uh, shooting where, you know, Sarah Palin was blamed by many in the media, um, be, you know, because she put a target over uh, that... Congresswoman uh, Gifford's district, but then it turned out that the shooter, Jared Loeffner, had never seen, had probably never seen that. And while he was, you know, political in a kind of abstract or vague sense, he was, you know, he he was his views were crazy. They were not necessarily right wing, or he was not like some kind of Tea Party patriot. Um, and and then you know that dynamic has repeated itself. You know, some obviously some killers do have a political, a discernible political ideology. I think we're still waiting, you know, to see what the case is here. Uh, maybe it's, a, you know, an anti-LGBT um, uh, killing and crime. And I, I, I would say it's just wrong to say things that malign those communities, you know, regardless of whether it has inspired this attack. And I think everyone is being or should be a little careful just because, you know, the most familiar, most um, uh, similar seeming attack, the Pulse shooting, ended up having nothing to do with a kind of, with like anti-LGBT bigotry. It was, a, you know, randomly targeted by a Muslim extremist. So I, I think that's why it's right to, to be cautious here. Now, it may turn out that, whatever, that this guy is the biggest Lauren Boebert fan, I'm probably not right, but is, is a right-wing person or was, is radicalized by right-wing rhetoric against these people. I would, like, that rhetoric is bad and irresponsible, um, obviously. But uh, I don't know. What do you think, Bacha? 
I mean, so obviously part of me agrees, like, you know, you can't walk around accusing people of being murderers for disagreeing with you politically. And the left has has um, created this new term, stochastic terrorism, which basically means anybody talking about a topic that is not on their side politically. And of course, to call your opponents a terrorist is also to put a target on their back, right? To call Lauren Boebert a murderer is to suggest that she needs the kind of justice that maybe somebody who believes in vigilante justice would, would take into their own hands. At the same time, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this, you know, how many times have I said that the left's, you know, bail reform, you know, they have blood on their hands for allowing murderers back into communities. How many times have I mm-hmm. said that they're, um, you know, that that them refusing to talk about violent crime or sentencing their fellow Americans to 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 death, essentially. So I, I feel on the one hand, yes, we need to bring down the rhetoric, but I also know that I am guilty of it. And when I ask myself, are you willing to not mm. say that anymore? I, I don't know that I am because I feel it so deeply. And so somebody who feels that so deeply, like who feels that criticizing Drag Queen Story Hour could inflame a crazy person to take an action like this, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can consistently say, well, you're not allowed to say that anymore. Well, you're a you're a uniquely self scrutinizing person, Vasha. I, I, we should all take a page out of your book in terms of that for sure. I, I mean, I guess it's different. Well, and in some sense, this is something liberals used to think, and many of them still do think, or classical liberals as well. It's, you know, some you've good free speech progressives, right? That there's a difference between words and actions. That you know, it's it's. I, I, or I can see charging someone with having blood on their hands for having s- supported or enacted, rather, a policy that has a, a harmful or violent or, or bad outcome, different, which is somewhat different than just saying things that maybe are bad or wrong or offensive, but are not, you know, the, the words inspire, right? The, I mean, that's why we have this ironclad protection for saying even, you know, really, even really like edgy things, really bad things, we protect that. We say, well, that's different than actually taking a swing at someone. Yes. Um, but, but look, I agree with you. The, the, the rhetoric around um, a, a trans issues and like, yes, drag queens and all that, I think has gotten very overheated on the right. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, conflating of, of different things. I, I, under, I understand or sympathize with people who don't think um, you know, that children belong around um, events where there's sexual content, where they're stripping. That actually, that doesn't describe all of these things. Sometimes it's just, you know, people dressed up in costumes, which that seems to me to be a, quite a different thing. But honestly, it's not my business. Like, parents and, and how they parent and what they think is appropriate for their children is like, I don't have any desire really to prescribe that or even like weigh in on that. It's just not my business. I might not, I'd probably not approve with, of what some of these parents are doing, but like that's their problem. And I, I don't think like involving the state in a lot of the, just as I don't think involving the state in more of people's like what COVID risks they, they are willing to take would be a good idea. Yeah, I, I generally would like just devolve to leaving people alone. And, and, and that is a tendency on a lot of subjects that the right has. And then on a different uh, opposite subjects, progressives have. And like neither side wants to admit, well, isn't that the same principle for all these other things then? We're saying we should generally leave people alone, even if you, know, you don't approve or you think it's bad or something. So anyway, that's a long way of saying I do think some people are getting a little bit over their skis on this stuff. Now, whether it had anything to do with this shooting remains to be seen. And I, I think it's very wrong to kind of, you know, jump 
to a conclu conclusions before we've before we've learned more, and uh, and then also to you know to try to retrofit an agenda onto what's obviously a disturbed and crazy person, um, a person with it sounds like a really horrible. Not, you know, we, I don't don't want to draw any sympathy to this person. This is you know evil. He should face the full consequences of his actions. Um, there was a, a clip going around last week of his dad talking about this. It sounds like his dad hadn't seen him in a long time or maybe even thought he was already dead. And uh, the, the father seems like a really, a real piece of work. He, he sounded like, if you watch this clip, you can go watch it if you really want to, basically was relieved that like his son who did the, who was accused of the shooting was not, is not believed to be gay, however. And like the person interviewing is like, okay, but he did just shoot up a club. Like that's really, he killed people and the dad is sort of like saying, well, at least he's not gay, though, which is, so that's it's pretty, pretty horrible stuff anyway. I mean, obviously, this is all horrible and uh, people should turn down the rhetoric for sure. Yeah, we, we know that he at least or that is it they that they that the shooter is now identifying as non-binary and going by mix pronouns. So just adding an added layer to it. Which right. I, Something I CNN was thought of... was transparently ridiculous when they covered right. it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I will just say I, I, I do think that um, the principle of allowing parents to choose how to parent their children, it does have a limit, right? We have sort of as a society decided, for example, it's no longer okay to hit your children, right? I mean, most, most, most of our society, I think, mm -hmm. now agrees pretty much about that. We do have a category of child abuse that we don't accept a parent is allowed to inflict on their child. I think the question is, you know, does taking a child to a burlesque act, uh, you know, for I think for a lot of Americans, in fact, I think for a lot more Americans than our mainstream media would like us to believe, that actually does cross a boundary that, you know, deserves some kind of investigation or, you know, some kind of social response to it. Obviously, God forbid, nothing like what happened here. But in terms of the rhetoric, um, the, our country is right now engaged in a very heated debate about um, sexuality, sexual identity, gender, and age appropriateness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the normie position on that, where most Americans are at on that, is much more conservative than where the basically 95% of our media is at. And so that makes people feel, I think, um, um, like they don't have any control over, you know, what their mm -hmm. child is maybe being taught in school, what their child is being exposed to. And I think that that sort of I think in a lot of people that kind of activates a protective instinct that makes the rhetoric very heated. Now, again, I don't want to be defending yeah. overheated rhetoric about this stuff. I, th I personally find the groomer rhetoric to be way too close for comfort to how they used to call all gay people pedophiles in order to undermine them and their quest for civil rights. I don't like that discourse at all. But well, um, and I, just, I think, I, yeah. yeah. I just know from, no, no, I agree with you. I just know from looking at um, a, a lot of child protective services cases that, I mean, they're travesty. They're disasters every mm -hmm. time and that even even in cases where children are in danger there's something bad going on the intervention of cps kit almost inevitably makes things worse because then you end up having kids split up from their siblings put in foster care homes that are often way more abusive even if there was some underlying problem um it, it's totally. really and I also totally i worry about 
I worry about how this could be weaponized against actually religious families too, homeschooling, um, Jewish families in New York, and there's you know the, think of the coverage of those schools from the mainstream media. So it, yeah. it seems like that's also just a warning I have for conservatives. Like, think really hard if, if before you want to empower the state to to make, take a closer look or uh, at what parenting decisions are getting made, because I think that would ultimately a hundred percent. I hundred percent. I think I think what they're choosing is a um, a political debate mm -hmm. over something like an intervention like that. But I think to them, you take something like what just happened with Balenciaga, where they put out an ad that was 100% explicitly sexualizing children, right? They had children holding teddy bears that were in sort of fetish gear. Mm -hmm. And the idea that of the thousands of people involved in a massive um, fashion brand like Balenciaga, in, in green lighting something like that, no one said this is a horrible idea. I think when conservatives look at Drag Queen Story Hour, that's what they see. They see mm -hmm. a culture that is mainstreaming something that most, the vast majority of us think is not not okay. And so I, rather than, you know, going in and taking children away from parents, always, almost always a horrible idea. I think they're opting for this public debate that the left is trying to smear as terrorism, essentially. Mm -hmm. Good points. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay tuned for more discussion. President Donald Trump is receiving major backlash for a dinner he had with Kanye West and far-right activist and white nationalist Nick Fuentes on Sunday. Trump tried to blame the rapper, who now goes by Ye, saying Ye agreed to have a solo dinner at Mar-a-Lago, but three other people unexpectedly showed up, including Fuentes. Trump's team went into full damage control mode, claiming he had no idea who Fuentes was when he arrived and describing the dinner as quick and uneventful. Despite their best efforts, the dinner received lots of backlash, including from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who said the dinner was, quote, an awful lack of judgment that makes Donald Trump, quote, an untenable general election candidate for the Republican Party in 2024. The White House also chimed in. Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates released a statement saying, quote, bigotry, hate and anti-Semitism have absolutely no place in America, including at Mar-a-Lago. Joining us now to discuss the controversy is former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, and deputy editor of Off the Press and host of Can't Cancel Rob Smith, Rob Smith. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So, Rob, let's start with you. First of all, thank you for your service, sir. Um, what were your first thoughts when you heard that Trump had broken bread with Nick Fuentes? Well, my first thoughts was that it was it's sort of an outrageous uh, lack of judgment, I would think, uh, uh, on the part of Trump and anybody that's surrounding him. Uh, you have to understand, you know, I've been personally targeted by Fuentes myself for being black and gay and all of these other things that people like him, you know, hate. And, you know, Nick Fuentes is what they pretend Republicans are. He is an anti-Semite. He is a white nationalist. He is a disgusting racist and he is a homophobic. He is homophobic. He is literally the worst of the worst. Okay, there's no defending that. So the the Trump team and Trump himself, um, he can try to distance himself from it. Um, he can sort of try to pretend as if he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But I would I would say that anybody that's really on the Trump 2024 team 
right now, hardcore, would have to think serious about whether or not they want to spend the next two years defending um, these unforced errors and the serious, serious lack of judgment uh, when it comes to having a, a, a dinner with Nick Fuentes. Mm. Yeah, what did you make of this, Michael? It just feels um, a little like deja vu, like we've seen this movie before. Sadly, I think like the cake is already baked. The people who uh, support Trump, who love Trump, his loyal loyal base, that's, this isn't going to change much for them. I think it's another example, sort of, um, you know, the associations that he keeps and um, the things that he does and says and he doesn't take responsibility for. It's going to be up to Republicans to sort of decide whether they want to follow him down another rabbit hole. Um, we've heard criticisms of him before. Again, all of this doesn't feel very new. It's going to be really whether he can um, win win an election. And he's proven that in 2017 statewide elections, 19, uh, 18, he lost the House. In 2020, he lost the White House and the Senate. Uh, he lost all the races he supported in Georgia this year, the primary races, and the people who were associated with him lost their races in a very winnable year for Republicans, despite economic pain. Um, well, that's not entirely true. Republicans are just going to have to make that decision whether they want to keep following somebody who's just going to keep losing them elections because the, the cake's already baked in terms of who he associates himself with. Well, ahead, I would, I'd like to hop in here and say, you know, it, it's a, a very good talking point from Democrats to say that everybody that he was associated with lost. Um, that's not necessarily true. There are a lot of people um, that had his backing that that won their races. Like I'm thinking about, you know, people like, um, you know, Maria Alvaro Salazar here in Miami. I'm thinking about like, you know, Ana Paulina Luna in Florida 13. Um, I'm thinking about people like George Santos in Long Island. So the idea and the narrative that everybody that was backed by Trump lost their races is a false idea. Um, Sadly, those, those were just I, not the races they needed to Excuse me. Um, I think it really does speak to candidate quality, right? And so those were very strong candidates um, that were not harmed by their association with this. I And I also have to disagree. What makes this situation different is this. And I'm somebody that was sort of on the uh, the, the coalition in 2020, the uh, log cabin Republicans, the, what they call a Trump pride coalition, right? And so I actually stumped for the candidate at the time, his candidate for president. So the difference between now and then is that uh, between 2018 and 2020, there were a lot of things that were sort of like made up and elevated by the left. There were tweets that were sort of mis, uh, misquoted. There were quotes from Trump himself that were misquoted. You had these sort of very fine people on both sides smear, which is one of the biggest smears and biggest lies to ever come from the left. So that stuff, was, you know, you can sort of um, explain that away because that stuff was lies. Um, this stuff with Fuentes, this is different because you cannot explain that away. And there's all sorts of stuff online, on the internet, all over the place that is going to show the average viewer who may not know who this person is exactly who this is. So I do believe that this is a major problem for Trump in a way that sort of a lot of the, the stuff that came up before was not. So, Rod, let me ask you this, though, because I'm with you. Like, I think that there was a lot of, like, needless smearing that was not accurate. But what would yeah. you say to someone who said, 
look, we've been telling you that this is who he's the guy who's going to have dinner at some point with Nick Fuentes all along. This vindicates, you know, our suspicions all along, even though he denied it and denied it and denied it. What's what's the co correct response? Well, to I that? would say, number one, first of all, I'm not speaking for Trump or anybody on the campaign at this point. But first of all, I would say um, people were people that would say I was telling you that he would have dinner with somebody like Nick Fuentes all along did not know who Nick Fuentes was before five days ago, first of all. <laughs> um, and, and second, of all, like I said before, the argument can be made with all of the onslaught of stuff that was coming before, the very fine people smear, um, the lie that he said all Mexicans that were coming from the border were rapists and, and, and drug addicts and whatever. So these were lies, right? So these things were different. And so if I were to get that argument, I would almost say that this was kind of the boy who cried wolf. You guys have spent the last seven years at this point lying to the American public, um, misquoting, misrepresenting all of these different things so that now when there actually is something that you have to stand on about the type of person that he is breaking bread with, the people that you have lied mm. to for the past seven years are not listening to you. Okay. Mm. So this is what I would say to these people. Well, while President Biden was out in Nantucket on Saturday, he emphasized that no one on his team is having conversations about running again in 2024. Now, while he's hinted at re-election, there's been no formal announcement. While President Trump has already announced his bid for re-election, he could, however, face a primary challenger in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Elon Musk, Twitter's newest owner, recently endorsed DeSantis, saying he'd vote for him for president in 2024. So, Michael, we've been talking a lot about the Elon Musk Twitter takeover, obviously, uh, for these last few days and weeks. Uh, it's kind of endlessly entertaining. But I, I can sense a, a real, uh, not, well, not just sense, I'm reading this real fear that a lot of uh, Democrats or mainstream media or progressive media people have about Twitter uh, now explicitly in the hands of someone who who very much, you know, who endorsed Republicans in the midterms, who has endorsed now a specific Republican, uh, Ron DeSantis. How do you think the media is going to handle that if DeSantis ends up being, uh, as I think he's likely to be, a, a serious uh, challenger for president? Uh, it's that, you know, that dynamic. And is, the, is there, there going to be a pining for Donald Trump as like a beatable candidate versus a DeSantis who everyone expects to be a more formidable opponent? No, I, I think we have to like take a step back first. I remember Rick Perry being the next best thing since sliced bread. I remember Scott Walker being the next coming. Hillary Clinton came off a 30-point re-election victory in 2006. That did not make her the nominee. Uh, we need to give Governor DeSantis a chance to have the, the tires kicked a little bit by the media, by Republican voters. Um, he doesn't just have to go through a Republican primary. He has to go through a Republican primary with Donald Trump, uh, where we have to see how he's going to withstand the constant assault on his character, on himself, day in and day out, the way a lot of other Republicans had to deal. And then we need to see what kind of candidate he is coming out of that. Um, but you don't you're not going to he's not going to run to the center in a primary. He's already very far right. Uh he has a lot of questions to answer for in terms of culture wars that he's tried to start in Florida. Um, he's by no means a moderate Republican that Democrats should be scared of. Um, in fact, I, you know, I just I, I don't really think that he's much of a threat at all. When you look at independent mm. voters and what they voted for, um, independent voters in, in Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania, they don't look anything like voters in Florida.
Mm. Last Michael, word, Rob. Let me ask you something. Or well, go, I go would ahead. say, well, I mean, oh, sorry. Well, I would, you know, ask him, like, what is the definition of far right? Again, this just seems to be one of these terms and these talking points that come from the left that means absolutely nothing. Uh, I've lived in Florida for the past two and a half years since the pandemic happened. Ron DeSantis is a very, Ron DeSantis, excuse me, is a very uh, moderate to center-right Republican. And I speak with um, independent and Democrat-leaning voters in Florida who like what he has done for the state. So define this far right thing. Um, I, I don't think you can. I think that this is somebody that should he decide to run, Ron DeSantis will be a very formidable um, general election opponent. And the reason that he will be is because he actually has a record to stand on. This is not somebody that um, needlessly engages in culture wars. The Parental Rights and Education Act was something that people were asking for. It's something that most people agree with, even here in Florida, uh, a lot of other places as well. So I don't agree with this characterization of him being far right. Uh, to Democrats, anybody would with an R um, by their name that is not Liz Cheney is far right. So we can kind of kill that talking point right now. Democrats are very anxious for him to jump in the ring and to have the the tires kicked by uh, Donald Trump and the media. We're very excited for it. And uh, we we would be embracing running against a record like that in uh, Pennsylvania, Mm. Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, I would look forward to a Biden-DeSantis race. I think... uh, It'll be very Michael, interesting. Michael, let me just ask you, you know the president well, you know his wife. <clears throat> Do you believe him when he says that no one on his team is having conversations about 2024 yet? Should we believe that that's true? <laughs> I believe he's running. He's he's running. And um, I wouldn't I, at this point, I wouldn't. Uh, the question for me would be, why shouldn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, he's been one of the most productive, uh, accomplished presidents in um modern American history when you're looking at first terms he has he's accomplished enough basically to last to last him two terms um he has every reason to be running and I expect that he will yeah I've always said he would run for re-election that would be totally what no one seeks power yeah. and then just randomly gives it up so I would absolutely yeah. expect yeah. to see that showdown uh and then we'll see about DeSantis as a potential general election candidate. At least uh, maybe he has a better choice of dinner guests. He might have that going for him (laughs) over Trump. Uh, Michael, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. More Rising right after this. Republicans plan to audit the Biden administration and the aid sent to Ukraine when they take control of the House in January. According to Fox News, the administration is now rushing to track down $20 billion it's given to the war-torn country following Russia's invasion in February. It's been reported that the administration has only inspected about 10 percent of the 22,000 weapons the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. Senator Rand Paul introduced an amendment to install an inspector general to oversee the spending on Ukraine, but it failed to garner enough support from both Democrats and fellow Republicans. On the House side, Republicans have been vocal about their opposition to approving more funding for Ukraine, something I expect will come up uh, pretty quickly in this new Congress when they're seated. Um, That's a lot of money that... We're not maybe sure all of how it's being spent. Uh, you know, the weapons we're not keeping track of. And we know there's this long history in other conflicts. Think of all the, the weapons that eventually ended up in the hands of ISIS or other groups like ISIS. You know, when you're just 
wholesale shipping them to other countries because the people who are our allies, they can be our, our, our allies one minute and then not our allies the next. We were allies where we were helping sort of, we were sort of on the same side of Osama bin Laden, right, back decades ago. And then we see how that turned out. So I, I think that's a very good criticism. Uh, you, you know, we, even, if, even if right now we want, you know, in our, in, with all our heart for Ukraine to repel this invasion, for the invasion to end, for the war to end, um, we, we cannot necessarily see the consequences of having exported so many guns and, and other things to, you know, a war-torn, to a conflict-type region of the world. I mean, it was a very lonely place in the media, February, March, April, May, June, July of last year, saying, hey, where's all this money going? Where are all these weapons going? You know, what is the national interest here? What is the end game for Ukraine? You know, we would ask all of these things um, and be called a Putin stooge, you know, and I'm sure the Democrats are getting, wiping off, you know, dusting off all of their, you know, these are Putin apologist talking mm -hmm. points about Republicans who are asking, where did our $20 billion go? Where did it go? And it's just so crazy to me, Robbie. Once again, you're seeing that the, the, the left, the Democrats have become the pro-war party and the Republicans are now the ones who are sort of standing up, you know, a little mealy mouth, but they're getting there and saying, wait a minute, hold on. Like, is this really something we want to be invested in? Is this really where we want to be putting our efforts and our energies? Do we really owe Ukraine a blank check to be fighting? Of course, they're on the right side of this war, but is that what we're supposed to be doing and to what end and for how long? It's just amazing how Trump scrambled the categories of American political life. No, absolutely. And and on foreign policy, it was starting to he came along at the right moment. It was that was starting to scramble itself. I mean, really, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the uh, end of end of the Bush years and then through the Obama years, you know, you had you had people on on both sides. You had very liberal, progressive anti-war Democrats or an area where the anti-war faction has often found itself. And then increasingly, you also had these anti-intervention Republicans like Ron Paul and Rand Paul, um, et cetera, uh, who actually did harken back to a, a long history of, of uh, non-intervention or, or opposition to, to foreign entanglements in the Republican Party. Actually, if you think about, a lot about our wars over the 20th century, uh, many of them were, were launched or, or fought or expanded by Democratic presidents. And you might, we might argue some of those wars were necessary. I'm not saying World War II or whatever, you know, whatever it, was a, it was a war we needed to involve. Not, or I'm not saying it's not a war we shouldn't have involved ourselves in, but a lot of our wars were actually uh, fought by Democratic kind of internationalist Woodrow Wilson type, uh, type, type figures or Lyndon Johnson or et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. It was not really until um, the Bush, the George W. Bush takeover post, uh, in post-9-11, the consensus scrambling that neoconservatism became very ascendant and really only just for, for 10 years. Now, almost all of the anti-war uh, ideology is in the Republican camp. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see the, the anti-war segment within the parties themselves. There might be very liberal people who, who are against this. But they are not represented politically very much now. I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about it, but it was such a clear moment when that, you know, that very mild letter put forth by the, the Dem progressive Democratic Congress people saying things I totally agree with. I absolutely agree with everything in that letter. And then they were forced to re retract it because the Democratic Party 
you know, is so busy giving, um, you know, giving awards to Zelensky or having him appear at award shows or, I don't know, having, um, <laughs> having celebrities give their awards to Zelensky. <laughs> hold on, yeah, hold on I, to my I, Oscar it, for me until you win the war, that kind of thing. And for the side that claims to be on the side of the working class, I mean, I've spoken to so many working class Americans who don't understand why we're giving all of this money away when we have so many struggles and problems here at home that could benefit from this kind of infusion of cash. Um, you know, it's 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 really, really atrocious. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, OK, fine, let's say we've decided that this is a worthy cause, um, that we shouldn't then have the right to say, um, okay, President Zelensky, it's time to find a way to negotiate your way out of this, that we don't have a right, having been the major funders of this, to demand some kind of peaceful negotiation. Um, I find that also to be, and that's something you hear a lot. You know, you hear that from Ukrainians, you hear it from uh, Ukraine's advocates, and you hear it from Ukraine's allies here domestically. You don't have a right to say, it's like, well, it's our money. So we do have a right to say, we do have a right to, to, to lay down conditions. And I think that's true of Ukraine. I think that's true of Israel, which now is struggling with a, a new far-right government. You know, when we are giving aid, when, when hardworking Americans are contributing to another country, that gives them a right to have a say about what is happening with that money, at least. Well, and no one will be honest with the American people about what we're doing here. The, the White House, the Biden administration, should just it could just honestly say, look, we're funding this because we believe that Russia is a serious geopolitical adversary. Vladimir Putin is an enemy. He is bad. We want him to, to lose uh, power, lose favor, and we're going to continue to fund this opposition to him because it's an important uh, geopolitical goal of ours. But that's not what they're saying. They don't say that. They say, no, we're standing up for human rights and it's important to intervene and help people who are struggling, etc., which doesn't, I think, just for exactly the reason you outlined, is not persuasive to the American people because many of the American people are suffering. Many of them need help. And there are people suffering uh, all over the globe. There are people worse off. And we've supported, we've been on you know, every side of every conflict. And so it's not, uh, it's not persuasive. The humanitarian element of it is not persuasive. Uh, and, and there are always abuses on both sides of wars. So you would really, I think you'd really need to make the case that no, this is, a, this is for our own security because Russia is a threat to it. And if somebody else is fighting them, good for them, and we're just going to contribute the money and we're actually getting off easy because we didn't have to send troops. That would be actually honest, but they won't say it. I think they won't say it because they don't believe it. They know that yeah. it's not true. I mean, there's just, it's impossible. How can you look at Russia, Russia's economy today, you know, and say this this play, this country, present, this petrostate presents some kind of, you know, existential threat to the United mm. States. It's obviously farcical. They're in it for, you know, uh, oh, virtue but I do signaling think, uh, reasons. No, so I agree with you, but I think they do think that. I think that is their mm -hmm. actual motivation here. They're just, they don't think it's persuasive, so they're not going to say it. <laughs> right, right. They, they, they believe it, but they don't think they can convince anybody else. Yep, <laughs> yep. All right, we got to go. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Looks like Elon Musk may try his hand at smartphone production. The new Twitter CEO says he would make a new smartphone if Google or Apple were to remove Twitter from their app stores. Now, Musk made this statement in a reply to conservative podcaster Liz Wheeler on Twitter. 
Wheeler claims half the country would happily ditch Android and Apple if Elon Musk produced his own smartphone if Apple and Google boot the social media platform from their app stores. This is not the first time ideas for a new phone have circulated on the internet. Earlier this year, there were many rumors online about a potential launch of a Tesla phone, though none mm. of this technology has been confirmed by Tesla or Musk. Where, mm. where are you, Rob? Are you going to buy a Tesla phone? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to know what other features it has. If Twitter is its only, uh, if it's only saving grace. Probably my life would be healthier if, uh, if uh, yeah, if I had a phone that didn't have Twitter on it. I, what would I do? I would never look at it again. <laughs> you, are you going to get the, the Musk phone, Batya? Um, you know, I really, I really don't think that they're going to boot Twitter I don't from think so the app stores. It, this seems very, very far-fetched to me, but I think, um, you know, Musk is clearly aligning himself with the cause of, you know, silenced conservatives. He's become their avatar. So every fight he picks online, this person who's most famous for making something conservatives don't really, you know, have an interest in, which is electric cars, right, has become somehow their hero. Um, I would never get a phone made by Elon Musk because of all of the issues I've always sort of said, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, obviously, the Chinese Communist Party would have full access to my entire phone, it seems to me. I mean, I, I've, I, we've never seen him say no to them. And so, you know, why wouldn't they ask him to, to, to be allowed mm -hmm. to track American citizens? And so I'm, I'm waiting for the first time he stands up and says no to them so I can sort of, you know, cheer him on in this fight he's waging domestically. But until then, it's really it's hypocritical for me to do so. I just feel that um, the security threats and the, the monitoring and the civil rights abuses and the privacy issues that he has shown himself to be totally immune to in China, I'm very worried that those are going mm. to get imported here domestically. But like I said, I find it really hard to believe they're going to boot Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I, I do too. Well, meanwhile, Elon Musk uh, says he may turn over internal discussions relating to the Hunter Biden laptop story. That would be fascinating. That's in response to a tweet calling for the publication of all internal discussions about the decision to censor the New York Post story. Elon said, quote, this is necessary to restore public trust. And I think that would be fascinating. Um, you know, I remember that Mark Zuckerberg really tried to throw law enforcement, uh, the FBI, under the bus when he was asked about this on, uh, it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, right? Joe he Rogan, said, yeah. well, yeah. you know, they had come to us and said, be on the lookout for Russian disinformation. And then this happened. And then everybody's looking at us and then saying, oh, it's Russian disinformation. So he really, honestly, he tried to throw them under the bus, under the bus probably more than they're even actually culpable because ultimately it seems like it, was, it, it wasn't specifically that they told him you know, this story, although they did say, obviously, then the FBI, you know, former law intelligence, uh, former national intelligence law enforcement officials said it was um, it, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. I guess you were supposed to read between the lines and know that that. Well, we're not saying it is. It just has the hallmarks <laughs> of um, which was, you know, so, so absurd how they get away with that stuff. But, yeah, we'd like to see you know, what was on the uh, the Twitter side of those conversations, they might have a very similar story in all likelihood. I, I disagree with you. I don't think this is in the public interest. I think this is about Elon Musk getting, getting back at the people who have quit or left. He wants to humiliate them by exposing their private intern. We already know that Jack Dorsey said it was a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Like, 
that's what was in the public interest is him admitting that they did it and saying it was a mistake. Like we're all on the same page about that now to release private communication seems to me to be designed just to humiliate people who have done their best mm -hmm. to humiliate him on Twitter. And like, I understand why he wants to do it, but I really think he should resist. I, well, I, I think mean, we should all redact. have a You can redact people's name. I don't know if there, if there are communications from, uh, from Homeland Security, the FBI, to Twitter saying, hey, you should be on the lookout for exactly this kind of thing. You can redact the names, but I, I would like to see that if they exist. Oh, definitely, yeah. If there's stuff from the government, that's yeah. for sure in the public interest. But if it's just, you know, the people going back and forth with Dorsey, you know, the ones saying, no, we have to censor mm -hmm. this, you know, our, our side is losing, you know, mm -hmm. come on, it's like a private company that's not, it had a, it had a big impact. It was bad that they did it. But I think that we should have a fast and hard rule when people publish pr private communications, if they're not in the public interest, if they don't have a very stated explicit goal, you know, I, I really think mm. that we should all be much more hesitant to be publishing and reading private messages. Well, I, I agree with that as a general principle. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's uh, it's interesting to watch Elon, you know, responding to all of these um, uh, conservative figures on Twitter, like responding all the time. Like he's very active on the platform itself, um, probably in a not super healthy way. I don't know what, how you feel about it. It seems. Well, I mean, uh, healthy for his soul. It's obviously great for Twitter because, you know, yeah. as we were saying earlier before we started recording, like, you know, we log on to Twitter. I, the first thing I do now is go and see what Elon Musk yeah, has said Elon because Musk it's feed, big yeah. news. It's really important. Well, you gotta find out what the new policies are going to be. He's that. just he's just declaring them. I gotta know if they've changed since yesterday. I have to know if the check marks are gonna go away or disappear or exactly. quadruple. Exactly. If you don't have three check marks, you don't count or something. Um, so you, you, you have to check in on that stuff. But uh, I wonder, I, I'm seeing him facing a lot of pressure to bring back um, Alex Jones. Uh, didn't Kanye West say something, yay, say that, uh, well, it's not Elon Musk is, you know, he's BSing unless he actually brings back Alex Jones, too. Um, and, and then Elon yes. weighed in on that, saying, well, the reason he's not bringing back Alex Jones is actually a deeply personal reason which I don't know that that satisfies the kind of free speech um, uh, uh, concerns. Um, so. Well, it comes back to what you've been saying from day one, Robbie, which is he can't both be a player and the referee. And that keeps coming up again and again. If he comes out there and he owns the platform and says, I'm voting for DeSantis in 2024, like he did, you know, that is at least going to give the appearance that there's going to be some kind. Yeah. I mean, you know, if he's announcing who he's voting, how could how could people on the other side of that not feel that they are not going to be given fair shakes? And I think you that was the most important point, and you made it right right from the beginning of this conversation. Mm. Uh, well, that's uh, that's it for today. Um, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to your podcast. It's been great being with you, Robbie. Yay, wonderful seeing you, Bacha. Brianna will be back with us tomorrow. I'll see you guys then.